Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and this is the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 59, Introducing Rome. The podcast has been making its way through the crucial developments of the Hellenistic period, but now, with Philo of Alexandria, we have arrived at a new world, the world of Rome. In this episode, we're going to begin to look at the importance of Rome for the history of Western esotericism by setting some important background. We want to introduce a little bit of crucial Roman history, but our main purpose is to explore the incredibly powerful idea of Rome as a universal empire, as the lens through which we view earlier civilizations like the classical Greeks, as the basis for Christianity, for European law, as the empire that never really died. The Roman Empire is the scene for the rise of the recognizable Western esoteric currents of antiquity, movements whose legacy is essential for all later developments. While much of the esoteric material we should be looking at from the Roman period is in Greek, because Greek remained the primary language of scholarship, philosophy, the sciences, and so forth throughout antiquity, even in the far west of the Roman world, it was Rome which nevertheless created the conditions the pan-European social and material framework, and even many of the ideas which allowed for the growth and crystallization of Western esotericism from the earlier ideas and movements we've been discussing in the podcast so far. It is in the Roman Empire that alchemy is born. It is in the Roman Empire that astrology spreads to become not only a cultural movement, but the political force it was to remain until the modern period. Rome saw the birth and burgeoning of Middle Platonism, along with its less strictly philosophical religious cousins like the Chaldean Oracles, the Hermetica, and the various Gnostic movements. In this nexus of Plato's bastard offspring, we can describe the earliest true Western esotericisms, as we've already seen in the Middle Platonist works of Philo of Alexandria. Rome also, of course, oversaw the birth and evolution of Christianity, the first great religious movement of late antiquity, and one which went on to be the matrix for countless esoteric currents. Rome gave to the far west of Europe its first empire, along with the esoteric concomitants that so often seem to accompany imperial power. Now, this episode will basically be a few meditations on the historical importance of Rome as an idea for she was very much an idea, as well as a concrete political structure, in her own day and ever since. So we shall not be delving too deeply into the nitty-gritty of Roman history. Indeed, there is already a complete History of Rome podcast for podcast lovers who want to get stuck into the turbulent events of Rome's rise and eventual decline. But before we get to the big idea, the idea of Rome, let's do just a little bit of historical situating. We'll start in the year 753 BCE, the traditional date of Rome's founding. So what does the Mediterranean region look like back then? Let's do a quick bird's eye review of our territory. Western Europe is largely stateless, made up of various tribal peoples, many of whom are now lost in the mists of time, having been invaded by waves of Celts, Germanic peoples, and others, even before the Roman rise to power had begun. The Near East is controlled by the Neo-Assyrian Empire, the latest iteration of a type of state going back all the way to the Sumerians in the Deep Bronze Age, 
We met these Neo-Assyrian folks back in episode 10 when we looked at the earliest origins of astronomy. In the 7th century, this region would be taken over firstly by the Medes and then by the Achaemenid state, the Persians that the classical Greeks had so much trouble with. But the Achaemenids, again, were largely following the age-old patterns of Near Eastern monarchy, to which they added a genius for infrastructure and bureaucratic organization. So that's the Near East, in the big sense. The Jews have not yet been captured by the Babylonians, and have some kind of independent kingdom of their own in the lands which would one day be known as Judea, as we discussed in episode 11. Egypt, of course, is Egypt, and has been, by this point, from the early Bronze Age. The New Kingdom period, arguably Egypt's zenith as a regional power, is now behind it, and Egypt has fallen somewhat in the world, but was and would remain a distinct and powerful cultural presence in the Eastern Mediterranean. Now the Greeks in our period, the 750s BCE, are emerging from their Dark Age. Sometime around then, in fact, the Homeric poems were written down, preserving a much older oral poetic tradition going back to the time before the Bronze Age collapse in the Aegean. From this time on, the whole Eastern Mediterranean will begin to be dotted with a new type of community, the Greek polis, or city-state. And Greeks enterprisingly got everywhere, including a whole lot of them in southern Italy. Now, the rest of Italy, because we need to discuss Italy now, was a patchwork of what are known as the Latin states. These were city-state-esque mini-principalities, each with its own language, which was kind of a relative of, of Latin. Latin, in fact, the language of the Romans, was one dialect of an extensive language group, which, with the later Roman rise to power, would all be assimilated and disappear. These Latin cities were very influenced by their Greek neighbors to the south, and when they begin to emerge into history, having picked up writing, probably from the Greeks, they are living in polis-like city-states, which show a lot of Greek influence and Rome is one of these. Also, to the north of the peninsula, we should mention the Etruscans, a mysterious people who, around our time, 700-ish BCE, began to build a kingdom for themselves. And this would expand to become, for a while, the major regional player in Italy. And Roman legends tell of a period when Rome herself was under the rulership of Etruscan kings. So here is a ridiculously simplified, potted history of Rome, from that legendary date of 753 until the 1st century CE, which is where we find ourselves here in the podcast. Because it's only in the 1st century CE that Rome becomes definitively the stage upon which all European events take place. Rome, by which we mean a small city-state on the banks of the river Tiber, and the surrounding countryside, began to expand a bit in Italy at first through various alliances with other Italian cities, who were, again, speakers of related dialects. But Rome eventually developed, over time, a complex and very interesting hybrid form of government known as res publica, the public thing, or the public matter. The Romans didn't like kings, and were ruled instead, once they'd thrown off the Etruscan kings, by an elected oligarchy composed of members of the senatorial class. 
Roman society had several levels to it, besides the senatorials. There were also the equites, who were also nobles, but not quite as noble as uh, the senatorial class. There were landed peasants, yeomen, and there were the plebs, the masses of unlanded Romans. At a certain point, the plebs engaged in social agitation, such that the res publica was reformed and gained a group of officials whose job was to represent the plebs. This was then even a more hybrid system, one which balanced the aristocratic senatorial ruling elite with the power of the people in the form of the tribunes. This system evolved over many centuries, and I'm giving a a completely ham-fisted account of its development, but the point is, in about the same period of time as what we know as the Hellenistic period, there was this form of government called the Roman Res Publica. The system evolved over many centuries, and it was very ad hoc, and it proved to be pretty unstable, and started to show cracks at the seams, even as Rome became more and more important as a regional power. Now, how did she become a regional power from such unpromising beginnings? This is a question which has bedeviled scholars, actually, almost as much as the question of why Western Rome collapsed so spectacularly in late antiquity. But we can all agree that in the broad strokes, one key to Rome's success was her incredible military of yeoman soldiers drawn from the Italian countryside and trained into a ridiculously disciplined but very flexible form of army. These citizen armies, in the course of the last three centuries BCE, the Hellenistic period, dispatched enemy after enemy, sometimes when attacked, sometimes as with the First Punic War, in defense of what were perceived as Roman interests abroad, or at the behest of allies, and sometimes as in the vast conquests of the last century BCE, as rival Roman warlords of the upper classes like Sulla, Pompey, and Julius Caesar took their own personally loyal sections of the Roman army on ambitious campaigns of conquest. The result was that by the 40s BCE, Roman society had undergone something like 100 years of civil strife as various increasingly powerful aristocratic warlord generals jockeyed for supreme power in the face of a weakened and fragmenting res publica, a system of government which had never been designed to rule what looked increasingly like an empire. Three wars with the growing commercial empire of Carthage, located at the western end of North Africa, had resulted in the total destruction of the Carthaginians in the Third Punic War. The road lay open to Roman domination of Western Europe and North Africa. Julius Caesar grabbed Gaul, modern-day France and parts north, subduing the local Gaulish chiefdoms. These are people we would call Celts. The Hellenistic kingdom of mainland Greece, Macedonia, was first made a client state and then absorbed in the 2nd century BCE. Four years of war with the Seleucids, the rulers of the Near East and parts of Central Asia, whose king, Antiochus the Great, declared himself the champion of Greek independence against Roman tyranny, ended in Roman victory at the Battle of Magnesia in 190 BCE. The final unconquered Hellenistic kingdom was Ptolemaic Egypt. With the Battle of Actium in 31 BCE, Egypt fell, and the victor, the young general Octavianus, Julius Caesar's adopted son, 
was able to consolidate both the Egyptian territory and a near-absolute power over the Roman state. Octavian was given a new name, Augustus, and a host of new titles, including Imperator, and thus was born the Roman Empire. Now again, Roman history is not our main interest here, but bear with us. We like to give some basic historical background on the assumption that some of our listeners can use these dates and geographies as signposts to attach events in the history of Westminster Terracism to. So, for Philo of Alexandria, for example, all of this is significant. He was a prominent Jew of Alexandria, which had only recently, maybe 10 to 20 years before he was born, depending on when he was born, gone from being a Ptolemaic kingdom to a Roman province. In other words, Philo was born into the Roman Empire. This is the political stage on which he played. But these basics of Roman history will also become important when we discuss the confluence of politics and the esoteric in Rome in the next episode, and in many episodes hereafter. Indeed, the political dimension has been largely missing from the podcast so far, and we'll be rectifying that in due course, because the connections between politics and esotericism are very fascinating. It may interest listeners to know, for example, that the first Roman emperor, Augustus, whom we just saw under the name of Octavianus, defeating Mark Antony at the Battle of Actium, and becoming the de facto sole ruler of this vast ad hoc empire that his predecessors had forged. This guy, Augustus, used astrology prominently in his imperial propaganda. To understand what was going on there, we need to know at least a few basics of Roman political and cultural history. But more on that next episode. In the meantime, we are going to leave our brief historical survey. Here we are in the Roman Empire. What do we want to know about this place from the point of view of the history of esotericism? Well, a few things. But the first and most important thing we should discuss is the idea of Rome. We've all heard Rome referred to as the Eternal City. Now, wait a minute. The Eternal City, Rome herself, was only an imperial capital from 31 BCE until, well... She was sacked three times in late antiquity by Germanic hordes, in 410 by Visigoths, 455 by Vandals, and in 546 by Ostrogoths. The practical day-to-day running of the Western Empire had to be moved to the more defensible location of Ravenna, because Rome was pretty much a lost cause. And then, silence. So that's something like a 500-year run as an imperial capital with pretty diminished luster in the final century, and her entire Western Empire falling into ruin to a greater or lesser degree. In many places, such as Britain, which had been a Roman province, there was a major civilizational collapse in the 5th century, as Roman troops pulled out and the civil infrastructure collapsed. Not a bad innings for an eternal city, 500 years, but now let's look at Constantinople. Constantinople, present-day Istanbul, not Constantinople, was the new Rome, the second capital of the empire from the year 330 onwards. It had been founded by Constantine, who was dividing the empire into eastern and western sides in an effort to make it more manageable and governable, and the sole capital of the eastern empire from 395 onwards. This eastern empire is the state which comes to be called Byzantium, or the Byzantine Empire, 
for totally illogical reasons, and we shall be referring to it in the podcast as East Rome. After all, the so-called Byzantines may have spoken Greek, but their Greek name for themselves was Romaioi, Romans. Hence, the Arabic word for someone from Anatolia, the heartlands of the East Roman state, was Rumi, or Roman. Yes, the famous Sufi poet Jalaluddin Rumi was originally from Afghanistan, but because he settled in Konya in Anatolia, that is, in Rum, or Rome, he acquired the name Rumi, the Roman. Constantinople, sole imperial capital from 395 until, well, until she was sacked in 1453 by the Ottoman Turks. All right, she'd also been brutally sacked by crusading knights from Western Europe in a wonderful act of Christian piety in the 13th century, but she recovered from this. So that's more than a thousand year history as an imperial capital and as a major regional power center. So what makes Rome the eternal city? It's because Constantinople was Rome. Long before the late antique period, before it became necessary to split the empire into two for administrative purposes, at the turning of the first century CE, in a time of great optimism, when it looked as though the unprecedented union of the entire Mediterranean region into a single political sphere had been accomplished and was here to stay, an idea of Rome had been born, an idea which transcended any kind of bricks-and-mortar reality on the ground. This idea of Rome really did prove to be eternal, even if the city of Rome had illiterate goat herds grazing their flocks in the ruins of the Colosseum for 500 years. Now, we'll have a lot more to say about this idea as the podcast progresses, because the idea of Rome didn't stop evolving with the collapse of the Western Empire. It lives on today. For example, the idea of Europe is, in part, the idea of Rome. Rome, at her height, was the mistress of the whole Mediterranean Sea, called Mare Nostrum, our sea, in Latin. And if we look at the modern-day European Union, we're more or less looking at the map of the Roman Empire, minus the lands which later became Islamic, and plus the Scandinavian countries Germany and Denmark. Before Rome, there was no possible way in which Europe, of all places, could have even been imagined as a single political and cultural unity. After Rome, it's never been possible to forget this possibility. And indeed, the idea of European Christendom maps perfectly onto the modified map of Roman Europe we've just described. This is, as we shall see in the course of the podcast, because the idea of Rome would become the idea of Christian Rome, and then simply of Christianity itself. And nowadays we talk about European values and a shared cultural heritage. We are talking about the empire, about Rome, even though we don't know it. When the idea of Western esotericism was first propounded, its formulation in the works of Antoine Fevre unconsciously followed the contours of the ancient Western Empire. Any esotericism in a country where Latin was spoken is Western esotericism. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. You'll note how easy it is to slip from referring to Rome as an actual city to referring to Rome as a dominion, an empire, a cultural sphere. Ancient Britain was part of Rome, Libya was part of Rome, Greece was part of Rome, Egypt was part of Rome, Romania was part of Rome, hence the name. 
So this is something more than a city, that's for sure. The birth of a truly compelling idea of Rome as a concept can actually be traced to a very specific time and place, and even to a single man, perhaps the greatest propagandist the world has ever known. And we should take a moment to discuss this man, for he was not only influential in later esotericism, but himself at least interested in the esoteric religious thought of his time, and very interested in forging what we might call an esoteric imperialism. I refer, of course, to Publius Virgilius Maro, better known today as Virgil. Virgil was probably born in the year 70 BCE, in the period known as the Late Republic, which we shall be discussing again in the next episode. This was the time of our first great wave of Latin language literature. In the previous generations, we had seen attempts to do with Latin what the Greeks had been doing for centuries, to compose great poetry, to write philosophy and history, to compose dramas, and so on. But now, in the first century BCE, Romans like Cicero and his friends had been traveling to Athens, which was now under Roman domination, so it was a conveniently domesticated source for exotic culture and philosophic wisdom, to study philosophy and so on. In fact, Cicero is one of our best sources for late Hellenistic philosophy. We know a lot of what we know of the important late Stoic thinker Posidonius from Cicero, for example. And as we shall see, he's also an important witness to the rise of a Roman neo-Pythagorean movement. So the elites at Rome were hungry for new pleasures, new sights and sounds, new ideas, and were busily working with their language, Latin, to make it into something capable of high literary art. Attempts had been made earlier. Ennius, a Latin poet whose work is mostly lost, had tried his hand at epic in a Homeric vein. More recently, Lucretius, a master poet of the generation before Virgil, had composed an avant-garde epic poem laying out Epicurean philosophy. And incidentally, this very unesoteric work, the De Rerum Natura, underwent esoteric reinterpretation in the 15th century in the thought of Giordano Bruno and others. Stay tuned. So, along came the young Virgil, with two collections of verse, the Eclogues and the Georgics, bucolic and agricultural poetry based on Greek models. These works were an instant success, and the young Virgil became a poetry rock star, people pointing him out in the street and asking to take selfies with him. Now, here's where our political background starts to come in handy. Virgil was born in the middle of a long period of civil strife punctuated by full-blown civil war. In the 80s BCE, just before Virgil's birth, the dictator Sulla had taken over in time-honored military junta style, and the usual mass prescriptions followed. So heads rolled, but the Roman state was sort of reorganized and put on a sounder footing by Sulla, or so it seemed. But then there were slave revolts, there were factional uprisings between rival Roman warlords, there were plots to overthrow the state, you name it. Things had been very violent and horrible for all of Virgil's life. And meanwhile, Rome continued to gobble up the remaining bits of the Mediterranean that she didn't already control. So that's our background. That's the first century BCE in a nutshell, from a Roman perspective. The young Virgil who is now a famous poet, if we're to trust the biographers, somehow gets to know the young Octavian, the future Emperor Augustus, and they become friends. Then, whether as a commission from Augustus or off his own back, 
Virgil embarked on his life's crowning achievement, which he would work on for more than 10 years, up to his death probably in 19 CE. This was the Aeneid, an epic poem in 12 books, still considered one of the masterpieces of Latin and indeed of world literature. The Aeneid tells the story of the founding of the Roman people by Aeneas, a Trojan fighter who's mentioned in Homer's Iliad, who, when the Greeks had sacked Troy, was forced to wander in search of a new home for his people. Guided by divine destiny, Aeneas eventually arrives in Italy and founds the new people who would one day be called the Romans. With the Aeneid, Virgil was outrageously ambitious, trying to do many things at once, and largely succeeding. With his poem, he gave the Roman people a definitive history, based on traditional sources that Virgil sort of used but creatively reinterpreted. Among other things, this history, as told in the poem, justified, indeed made divinely inevitable, the Romans' conflicts with the Greeks, because these are revenge for the Trojan War, right? The Romans' conflicts with the Carthaginians, and even the Romans' conflicts with the other Latin peoples, whom they'd had to basically conquer in their first wave of expansion when they took over all of Italy. All these conflicts went right back to the period of the Trojan War, and Rome's recent conquests were all just a balancing of the books. The poem also connected the Romans, who, as we've seen, didn't have exactly inspiring beginnings, with the greatest heroes of the past, the Homeric heroes. We Romans, too, have ancestors who fought on the plains of Troy, just like you Greeks. In short, the Aeneid provided the new Roman state under Augustus with a national myth that said all the right things and was expressed in poetry of unprecedented excellence in the Roman national language, Latin. It also glorified specifically the Julio-Claudian gens, or family, to which the first emperor, Augustus, was attached. So it provided the ruling autocrat with a divinely sanctioned pedigree going back to the earliest times. Indeed, it provided him with a literal descent from the goddess Venus. But the Aeneid also looked to the future. Divine prophecies occur throughout the work. In fact, they're like a major structural element to the Aeneid. And they guide Aeneas and tell him of his great destiny at various points in the narrative. Most particularly, there is the so-called cavalcade of Romans in Book 6 of the Aeneid. Now let's talk a bit about Book 6 of the Aeneid, because it's a doozy. Now the poem as a whole is constructed on Homeric models, but in a really innovative way. The first half, the first six books, are roughly Odyssean. So Aeneas, like Odysseus, is wandering after the Trojan War, trying to get home. Or in Aeneas's case, he's trying to found his new home, which is predestined by the gods to be in Italy. Then the final six books of the Aeneid are Iliadic. Aeneas, having arrived in Italy, must fight against the natives, who are the Latins. <laughs> the final result of all this will be that the Latins and the Trojans will fuse to form a new people, the Romans, but not before some serious bloodshed. Now, book six is like the hinge of the Aeneid, linking the two macro sections, the Odyssean and the Iliadic. Aeneas needs help in finding his way to his new home, so he consults the Cumaean Sibyl. We've mentioned the Sibyls before in this podcast. A Sibyl was a Greek cultural figure, a kind of female seer with direct hotline to the gods. And there's all kinds of interesting legends about Sibyls in the Greek tradition, in the Latin tradition, and as we've seen, even later in the Jewish Christian tradition. There were various Sibyls, 
And the famous Sibyl of Cumae seems to have been the one with the most cultural weight for the Romans. And the Romans historically had a set of cryptic oracles written down in something called the Sibylline books, which they would consult for guidance in times of state emergency. So Virgil here is referencing a figure with very ancient divine authority for the Romans. And his Sibyl does not disappoint. She lives in a cave, and the description of her dwelling is absolutely hair-raising. She's this crazy prophetess who sort of rants and raves and receives inspiration from the gods. And the whole thing gets really, really crazy. Highly recommended. Now, the Sibyl guides Aeneas into the underworld, which is where you went for wisdom back in the day. Virgil, of course, is writing at the end of the Hellenistic period, and so in his post-Platonic day, the normal direction to go for an otherworldly journey in search of wisdom is up toward the heavens. But because Virgil is riffing on Homer, Aeneas, like Odysseus, must descend to the land of the dead in a catabasis for the wisdom that he seeks. As an aside here, just as the Sibyl is Aeneas's guide to the underworld, so the poet Virgil himself would be Dante's guide in the Divine Comedy, a work which will appear in the podcast in due time. This is only one indication of how important Virgil became in the Latin West. Uh, for more on his later reputation, which included being thought of as a pre-Christian prophet and foreteller of the coming of Christ, and also included the use of the text of the Aeneid throughout the Antique Period and the Latin Middle Ages to divine the future, the Sortes Virgilianae, the um, practice of opening the Aeneid at random and interpreting what would happen in the future by the first line or lines of poetry you came across. You can see Ziolkovsky and Putnam's book listed in the recommended reading of this episode. Now, Aeneas and the Sibyl descend to the underworld, and as they pass through Hades, it becomes clear that this is not just any underworld, but an underworld full of Orphic themes. The two divergent ways the shining heavens beneath the earth, and a host of other details such as the amazing cosmological stuff that Virgil gets into, and a doctrine of reincarnation, have led scholars to speculate as to what exactly is going on here. But it is at any rate clear that Virgil is drawing on a literary tradition associated with the Orphic mysteries, even if he's not himself an initiate, whatever being an Orphic initiate would have even meant to a Roman in the first century BCE. See episode 23 for some relevant discussion of these issues around Orphism and the transformation of Orphic mysteries into literary tropes. In the rather Orphic underworld, Aeneas meets the shade of his father Anchises, who has been sort of summarily killed in an earlier book, basically so he can appear again and foretell the future to Aeneas. Anchises shows Aeneas a place in the underworld, that you get to by going down the right path rather than the wrong path. And in this place are the pre-existing souls of the greats of Roman future history. They're all sort of lined up waiting for their time to ascend to the earth and take their place on the world stage. And Anchises sort of points out the, the big names in turn, giving a bit of a potted history of Rome's ascent from a small town in Italy to mistress of the Mediterranean. And last of all, he points out the soul of Augustus, the man who, as Virgil portrays him, would bring an end to the civil strife of the late Republic and usher in a new golden age and an imperial power that would cover the whole earth and would never die. He was, in fact, 
quoting lines 790 to 797 of Book 6, This man, this is he whom I've so often foretold to your listening ears, Augustus Caesar, of Jupiter's race, who will found a golden age bringing back to Latium the rule of Saturn from long ago, and who shall carry the bounds of empire over the Garamantes and the Indians. His land lies beyond the stars, beyond the paths of the year and the sun, where heaven-bearing Atlas carries the dome of heaven set with burning stars. So, Latium, referred to here, is the region of Italy where the Romans were from. The reign of Saturn is a reference to the Roman belief that long ago Saturn, the god, had ruled on the earth in a golden age. The Garamantes and the Indians are proverbially the furthest east people in the world, and of course the place where heaven-bearing Atlas carries the dome of the heavens is a reference to the furthest west you can go in Europe, the Pillars of Hercules. So, so, Virgil is by no means inventing the -the over-the-top political panegyric here. It has a history as long as kingship itself. But what Virgil does here, and with his propaganda project more generally, is establish the idea of the Roman Empire, the imperium mentioned in these lines we've just quoted, which in Virgil's time is not yet the name for a form of government. It simply refers to the power of an autocrat. The idea of this imperium as a new golden age, as a world empire. So note the reference to all these far-flung people. The point is not that Augustus would actually ever conquer some Indians, but simply that the empire would reach to the vaguely defined ends of the earth. It would be a world empire. And as an empire with cosmic significance, hence the references to the stars and the procession of the yearly cosmic cycle, which Augustus's empire actually sort of is greater than. It, it sort of conquers the cosmic order. And this became the Rome, the eternal city. A city eternal not in any one place on earth, but in the grand narratives and national myths of Europe and of the West more generally. So having discussed Virgil, a genuine Roman of the genuine Rome, let's say a few more words about this imaginal Rome which he helped to found, and how it still survives today. In East Rome, as we've noted, there never was a collapse. Of course, East Rome remained a major power in the Eastern Mediterranean throughout the period we know as the Middle Ages. So was there a medieval Roman Empire? Well, not exactly. But this is not because the East Roman state disappeared in the Middle Ages. Far from it. Every medieval king in even the remotest backwater of Western Europe knew that far away in Constantinople there still reigned the emperor with his immense wealth and his ancient claim to be God's legitimate vice-regent here on earth. No, the East Roman state survived the Middle Ages perfectly well, they just didn't have a Middle Ages. So first of all, the East Roman state never descended into feudalism, which is a particularly West European style of social organization. There were elements of baronial takeover in the East, don't get me wrong, and things didn't remain in a static, sort of late antique mode of social organization. Things changed, but nevertheless, the Eastern Mediterranean, it never became medieval in the sense of the kind of typical social organization we talk about when we talk about medieval. Then, if we want to posit a Middle Ages, we need it to be the middle of something. In the narration of far Western development fabricated during the Renaissance, there was the classical period followed by these Middle Ages, 
which in turn gave way to the Renaissance or rebirth of classical learning. Now, you only have to listen to Italian opera and realize that this was meant to be a reconstruction of ancient Greek theater to realize that the Renaissance wasn't exactly a revival of anything. But never mind. With the rise of Western Europe to world dominance in the early modern period, this narrative that had been sort of forged during the Renaissance proved very attractive, and we all learn it in school to this day. So we've created a narrative of European history in which we moderns are descendants of Rome, essentially. So what about the fact that for the Eastern Mediterranean and Central Asia, that is for the center of gravity of Western civilization from the time of the fall of the Western Empire until the 16th century, there never was a need for a renaissance because there had never been a loss of classical learning, political forms, modes of production, etc., etc., in the first place. For the majority of Western mankind, in other words, there were no Middle Ages. So, getting back to the idea of the eternity of the imaginal Rome, which gave rise to this little excursus about the Middle Ages and how small and regional a phenomenon they really were, we can say that there never was a Middle Ages, and there were certainly no Dark Ages, in the Eastern Mediterranean or Central Asia, precisely because Rome never fell. And I would argue further that Rome still hasn't fallen. In fact, she's grown and taken on luxuriant hybrid growth. Look at the United States of America, whose constitution was framed by 18th century Freemasons, looking to unite the Roman Republic with the Iroquois League. Look at Russia, which even today sports the double-headed eagle, the heraldic symbol of the city of Constantinople as its symbol. Look at all Western codes of civil law, which still to this day go back to the digests of Roman law compiled under the fanatical Christian emperor Justinian in the 6th century as their fons et origo. The empire never died. In the next episode, we shall explore the early centuries of Rome's ascent to dominance and the many interesting roles played by esoteric currents inherited from the Hellenistic world in Roman life, Roman literature, and especially Roman politics. Quae donec emissio ad late erit, manete esoterici ut voce graeca utare.